Good morning, Haynes Creek. Good to be with you. Uh, we had a couple of Sundays off here for the holidays gathered online, but it is good to be back with you in person. I missed y'all. Hope you missed gathering. And uh, I'm, I'm just excited to be here with you today. If it is your first time here, special welcome to you. We are thrilled and excited that you are here worshiping with us, and we would love a chance to, to follow up and let you know how much we appreciate you being here. So if you do me a huge favor, before you go home, if you wouldn't mind stopping by our table right out there as you go into the hallway again, we've got our welcome cards right there on the table. If you wouldn't mind filling that out, you can just leave it right there on the table, but that gives me an opportunity to reach out, follow up with you, and let you know how much we appreciate you. So if you could do me that favor. I would appreciate that. And church, we're going we're gonna to jump back into our series through the book of Acts today. Uh, there's two more weeks of Acts left. So we've got this Sunday and then next Sunday, and we're going to finish up the book of Acts. We've been in it since the end of January last year, and now we're, we're coming to the end, coming to a close. So we're going to we're going to be in Acts chapter 27 today, and we're going to finish up next week with Acts chapter 28. And then just to let you know what we're doing after that, uh, those next two Sundays, we're going to do something a little different. Those next two Sundays, the 22nd and the 29th of January, I want to highly encourage you, if you can, be here for those next two weeks. So on the 22nd and the 29th, we're going to do something for two Sundays that, that I'm calling Vision Sunday. So the first week, we're just kind of going to recast our overall mission, vision, direction as a church who we are, who is the Lord called Haynes Creek to be as a church. We're going we're gonna to do that. The first Sunday is going to be a, a high-level overview on the 22nd, and then the 29th, what does that mission, vision, who God's called us to be, what is that going to look like for 2023? What are we prayerfully considering? What are we, we calling the church to? What are we trying to accomplish as a body of believers in this upcoming year. So again, if you can be here for the 22nd and the 29th, please make it a priority. Be here those two Sundays. And then starting in February, we're going to start a brand new series. Uh, I'll let you know what that is next week. So we're not going to tell you that today. I'm going to dangle it out there a little bit for you. So in February, we'll start a brand new series. Um, but if you can be here these next three weeks, we're going to finish up Acts and we're going to spend some time uh, just kind of talking about who we are as a church and what that means for us in this upcoming year. So make sure you're here for that. All right, so let me just kind of give you a recap. I know it's been, we took a couple weeks off of Acts for the holidays. So let me kind of recap where we've been and, and what brings us to Acts chapter 27 today. So the last time we were in Acts, we saw in Acts chapter 26, Paul is standing in his last trial before King Agrippa, the governor, Festus of this area. He's standing before them, giving his defense, and really it's, it's just his testimony. He's just talking about, hey, here's who Jesus is. Here's how he changed my life. And guess what? He wants to change yours too, right? Like he's, he's sharing the gospel. He's sharing his testimony to these, these powerful leaders over this area, powerful people in this area. God's given them this opportunity to share the gospel. It's an incredible moment. And we know from Acts 25 that Paul has appealed to Caesar. He's appealed to Rome. So he's in custody. He's been arrested. And even though we saw at the end of 26 where King Agrippa's like, man, this guy, he's done nothing wrong. There's no reason to keep him in prison but he's appealed to Caesar. He's appealed to Rome. So we got to keep him in prison. You got to send him to Rome. Like that's, it's a done deal. Like no matter how innocent Paul is, he's appealed to Rome. He's going to Rome. We also know from the other parts of Acts that God has made it clear that that's exactly what he wants from Paul. He is bringing Paul to Rome. And now in Acts chapter 27, Paul finally is headed to Rome. So again, if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 27, you can follow along on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, we got some at the table out there as well. If you don't own one, grab one of those uh, on your way out today. But as you're turning there, it's a new year, right? So we're in 2023, and typically with new year comes New Year's resolutions, right? Anybody make some resolutions for the year? It's, I know there's some type A people that love goal setting, all right? I know there's some of y'all out there, don't lie. I know that. It's, and that's good. That's a good thing. Goals are a good thing, right? It sets kind of direction. It kind of keeps our mind on something. Maybe it's, you know, being healthier or, or some financial goals you want to have or some things you want to do in your career or with your family. Uh, setting goals is a good thing, right? It's a very good thing to have these, these resolutions. But typically, what we see, maybe you've even experienced this in your life, I know I have for sure, like we set out new year, new me, we're doing things, we're accomplishing stuff this year, man, I got my list of things that I'm going to do, these things that I'm going to accomplish, these things that I'm setting out to do in this new year, and then we start out strong and everything's going great, and then, and then, and then it's, it's not, right? It's, it's not. Things start out good, and then it's like, oh, man, I really, you know, maybe it's, I, I want to be healthy this year, I want to I exercise, you're like, man, I'm going to the gym every single day. 
and then three weeks in, something happens, you miss a week, and then it's like, oh, that next week, and you're like, yeah, no, I don't think I'm going to go. I don't think I'm going to do it. Uh, you know what? I'll, I'll start again the next week. And then it's, it's four months later, and you're like, I've never darkened the doors of that gym again, right? Like, you don't have to admit that you've done that. We've, we've all been there, though. We all have these, these things. We set out to do these things, and then it doesn't work out. We start out strong, and then it tapers off. You know, maybe, you know, it, it's things come up. Like, there's lots of reasons for this. Things come up. Maybe, maybe more things happen in your life. Maybe, maybe more important things. You're like, man, I, I wanted to do this, but this has now become more important. I got to focus here. Maybe you go through just, just a difficult season, a hard season, and that, that can change so much of what we plan to do. And what we learn from New Year's resolutions is that life doesn't always go according to plan, right? We can set our plans, we can set our goals, but life doesn't always go according to plan. And we see this play out in Acts chapter 27. Paul's journey to Rome is anything but smooth and easy. In fact, it's really difficult and doesn't at all go according to plan. So let's, let's read this. It's a long chapter, so hang in. Hang in there, y'all. Bear with me. It's 44 verses, so we're going to walk through this. I'll kind of explain as we go, and then we'll talk about what we can learn from it. So Acts chapter 27, starting in verse 1. It says, when it was decided that we were to sail to Italy, they handed over Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion named Julius of the Imperial Regiment. When we had boarded a ship of Adramidium, we put to sea, intending to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian, the Thessalonica was with us. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and allowed him to go see his friends and receive their care. When we had put out to sea from there, we sailed along the northern coast of Cyprus because the winds were against us. After sailing through the open sea off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we reached Myra of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. Sailing slowly for many days with difficulty, we arrived off Canidus. Since the wind did not allow us to approach it, we sailed along the south side of Crete off Salmone. With still more difficulty, we sailed along the coast and came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. Okay, that's a lot of cities' names. I, the, we have a map. We got that map, Blake. Can you put that up there? Just to kind of help us center around what's going on here. So they set out from Caesarea down here in the bottom right corner, and, and they're going to they're gonna try to make their way to Italy. So they board a ship of Adramidium, and I know that sounds like what they put in Wolverine, but it's actually a city up there. You can kind of see it near modern-day Turkey. I walk over there, so it's near the top of that. It's a city over there, and that's just a, a little ship. So they're just sailing along the port cities along what modern-day Turkey would be. So the intention is eventually they're going to have to get on a ship that's actually going to Italy. So right now they're, they're traveling along these port cities. As you can kind of see there, there's Sidon, there's Cilicia, there's Myra, where they end up in the, the area of Lycia. So, and then they're going to try to make their way from there to Crete and eventually get to that port city, Fair Havens, off the island of Crete. So that's what's going on, and that's where they, they get on a, a ship, a much larger ship from Alexandria. It's a grain ship traveling from Alexandria to Rome. And that was kind of how the, the system worked. Alexandria, Egypt was known for having a lot of grain. And what Rome would do is they would pay a premium to these uh, ship captains to sail in this time of year, because it's very dangerous, very hard, which we're going to see. They, get, they paid a premium to bring that grain from Alexandria to Rome so that they would have this continual supply of grain for the empire. So that's what's going on here. But already what we're seeing is, is even in these few verses, it's, it's with difficulty. The wind was against us. Like things are not going well, and, and that's going to continue. Verse 9 here. By now much time had passed, and the voyage was already dangerous. Since the day of atonement was already over, Paul gave his advice and told them, Men, I can see that this voyage is headed toward disaster and heavy loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than to what Paul said. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided to set sail from there, hoping somehow to reach Phoenix, a harbor on Crete facing the southwest and northwest into winter there. Okay, so let's, let's pause. What they're trying to do is get to a safe place to just kind of hang out and wait it out. Because again, this time of year, so we know from this mention of the Day of Atonement, that's uh, the holiday Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, you can read about that in Leviticus chapter 16, that typically happens in late September, early to mid-October. So we're getting into the late fall, 
early winter, and the sea, this Mediterranean Sea during this time, is very dangerous to sail in. So this is, again, this is why they paid a premium. Like, this is not a good idea to keep going. But they want to try to make it to a more suitable port city. Fairhavens was small. It was open to the wind. And if that ship got damaged, it was going down. Because, again, this is a big, heavy boat full of grain. So if it gets water, if it breaks a little bit, it is going down. So they want to try to get to a better port city. So that's what they're trying to do. Verse 13. When a gentle south wind sprang up, they thought they had achieved their purpose. They weighed the anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. So good wind comes. They're like, oh man, we got this. Verse 14. But before long, a fierce wind called the Northeaster rushed down from the island. Since the ship was caught and unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. After running under the shelter of a little island called Kauda, we were barely able to get control of the skiff. That's the lifeboat that they would usually trail behind on a big ship like this. After hoisting it up, they used ropes and tackle and girded the ship. Fearing they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the drift anchor, and in this way they were driven along. Because they were being severely battered by the storm, they began to jettison the cargo the next day. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. For many days, neither sun nor stars appeared, and the severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope was fading that we would be saved. All right, so they they try to make their way to the other side of the island of Crete, and then this fierce wind, that that word for fierce in your Bible is where we get the word typhoon from. So this is like a hurricane typhoon. This is not just a, a little storm. This was bad. And it takes this giant ship and forces it out to sea. They're sailing along an island, and now they're forced out in the middle of the sea, and they are just drifting along at the mercy of this storm. And at that point, all hope is lost. They thought they were a goner. They were done. No hope. And here is what happens next, verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul then stood up among them and said, you men should have followed my advice not to sail from Crete and sustain this damage and loss. I love that Paul's taking a minute to just be like, look, y'all, I told you so. Okay, told you so. Should have listened to me. You didn't, but here we are, all right? Verse 22, now I urge you to take courage because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. For last night, an angel of the God that I belong to and serve stood by me and said, don't be afraid, Paul. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar. And indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So take courage, men, because I believe God that it will be just the way it was told to me but we have to run aground on some island. Verse 27, when the 14th night came, we were drifting in the Adriatic Sea, and about midnight, the sailors thought they were approaching land. They took soundings and found it to be 120 feet deep. When they had sailed a little farther and sounded again, they found it to be 90 feet deep. Then fearing we might run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight to come. Some sailors tried to escape from the ship. They had let down the skiff into the sea, pretending that they were going to put out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut the ropes holding the skiff and let it drop away. When it was about daylight, Paul urged them to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been waiting and going without food, having eaten nothing. So I urge you to take some food, for this is for your survival, since none of you will lose a hair from your head. After he said these things and had taken some bread, he gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them. And he, after he broke it, he began to eat. They all were encouraged and took food themselves. And all, there were 276 of us on the ship. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing the grain overboard into the sea. Verse 39. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but sighted a bay with a beach. They planned to run the ship ashore if they could. After cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea, and at the same time, loosening the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail into the wind and headed for the beach. All right, so they, they know they're getting close to land. They finally, the next day, the finally daybreak comes, right? The storm has relented. The clouds have lifted. They can finally see ahead of them. They see this beach, and they're like, man, we don't know where we are. We don't know what it is. We don't know what this island is, but there's land, and let's get to it. So they, they cut away the anchors. This is all of them. They're, they're going full force ahead to try to run the ship into this island to not have it break off into the middle of the ocean. So that's what they're doing. Verse 40, or verse 42, sorry. Sorry, verse 41. There we go. Verse 41, but they struck a sandbar and run the ship aground. All right, so bad news, right? They didn't make it to the ocean, or they didn't make it to the beach. They, they hit a sandbar. They hit some rocks there before that, and, uh, and the ship is, is now run aground on that. 
The bow jammed fast and remained immovable while the stern began to break up by the pounding of the waves. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that no one could swim away and escape. But the centurion kept them from carrying out their plan because he wanted to save Paul. And so he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to follow, some on planks and some on debris from the ship. And this way, everyone safely reached the shore. So we see, finally, they make it to the shore, right? Everybody, even though uh, these the soldiers wanted to, to kill the prisoners, you might be like, well, what's up with that? Well, just know that those, those soldiers were put in charge of the prisoners. If the prisoners escaped and got free, Roman policy stated that those soldiers had to be put to death. So they're like, man, we're not going to risk our lives. Let's just kill these people, and then we'll be safe. I mean, that's really dark and, and crazy, but that's what was their thinking. Centurion stepped in and was like, no, 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 we're not doing that, guys. Chill out. Let's just get to shore. Paul said we were going to survive. I believe him. Let's trust him. Let's get to shore. So they, they do that, and sure enough, everybody, all 276, make it safely to shore. Man, what, what a wild ride in this chapter, right? Like we set out, we're just, we're on our way to Rome, and all of a sudden, man, there's, there's difficulty, there's this bad storm, you're pushed out in the middle of the ocean, and finally there's a shipwreck, and everybody's swimming to shore. Like this is crazy. Now what's going on here? What's going on here? Why, why this long chapter about Paul's sea voyage to Rome? Paul's been traveling by sea his entire missionary journeys, all the way when we see him starting in Acts chapter 13, and now we're in Acts chapter 27. And oftentimes the author, Luke, has just kind of summarized, oh, he went here, he went there, he went here and there, and then he sailed there, and then he did this. Why this long chapter with all these details about how Paul is getting to Rome? What's going on here? Well, I think it's just like our resolutions our New Year's resolutions, just like they remind us that life doesn't go according to plan, that's exactly what Acts chapter 27 does. It reminds us that in life, there's going to be storms. There's going to be moments in life where we, we get pushed off course. Maybe it's, it's our own sin and bad decisions. Maybe it's as a result of other people or following bad advice. Right? Somehow, somehow we, we get pushed off course. There's difficulty. There's hardships. Maybe even there's shipwrecks in our lives. How do, we, how do we respond to that? I mean, even this year, going into a new year, it's full of hope and excitement. And, and look, my prayer for you, absolutely, is that this year will just be the, the, the most amazing, blessing-filled year of your life with no sort of difficulty or hardship. Like, that would be amazing, right? Like, that's what we pray for. But we also know that that, that, that might not be the case all the time. Even this year, we might face some storms and hardships. This year, we might face a shipwreck in our life, right? How do we respond? How do we navigate through the storms of life? Well, I think we learn four things here from Acts chapter 27, four things about navigating the storms of life. Number one, if you're, if you're taking notes, is this first thing we learn is when we, we walk through the storms of life, we need to remember who we belong to. Remember who we belong to. Look at verse 23 again. This is Paul's encouragement to the people on the ship. Remember that this is at their lowest point, right? We saw all hope has lost of them feeling like they could be rescued. And part of what Paul says is he says in verse 23, For last night an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me. Paul starts out his encouragement to these people by telling them that an angel came to him of the God that I belong to. That's interesting words by Paul there. The God he belongs to. Paul belongs to God. He is the Lord's. And the Bible speaks of this often as as those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, believers, followers of Jesus. The Bible speaks of us belonging to God, of being in the ownership of God. We see this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. It says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought at a price. We are not our own. We have been bought by a price. Christ has purchased us through his death on the cross. Jesus says this of his followers in John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So if we've put our faith in Jesus, if we're his followers, we are his sheep, and he's saying that he's got us in his hands. The Father has given us 
to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. We belong to Him. And this should bring us comfort in the storms of life. The truth that we belong to God should bring us comfort. I love the way the, the New, City, New City Catechism, it's this, uh, catechism is just a series of, of questions and answers to teach us theology. New City Catechism was developed to teach, help us as parents teach our kids uh, some doctrine in life. And the first question is, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer, that we are not our own, but we belong to God. What's our only hope? Our only source of joy, comfort, hope, peace in this life? said, I'm not my own, but I belong to God. Now, why should that bring us comfort? Well, I want to read from another catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism. This was developed in the 1500s by Luther and his followers, and it starts out the same way. Question number one of this is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. So why is our only comfort, why is our only hope in this life the truth that I belong to Jesus? Because of what it reminds me of, because of what it it tells me. The truth that I belong to Jesus means, as this just told us, that, that my sins are paid for. My sins are paid for. I don't have to fear. No matter what happens in this life, no matter what happens to me, at the end of it, I don't have to fear condemnation. I don't have to fear death. I don't have to fear separation from God. My sins have been paid for. I belong to Jesus. It reminds me that, that God is the one who preserves me in this life. What that tells me is I'm safe and secure in his hands at all times. How's that little kid song go? He's got the whole world where? In his hands. In his hands. And sometimes I need to be reminded of that. Because when you're being tossed around by the storms of life, it's hard to remember that you're still in God's safe hands and he still is preserving you. But what reminds me of that is that I belong to him. I'm always safe with him. Not only does he do this, he also gives me the Holy Spirit as assurance of all of this and as a guide in this life. Who do we follow? We follow Jesus. No matter what storms may come, We follow him. Why? Because I belong to him. I belong to God. Look, often in in the storms of life, I think we can all admit this, often when, when life gets hard, when life gets difficult, we want one of two things. Sometimes we want both, but usually we want one of two things. We we want a reason for the storm. Why is this happening? And we want a resolution to the storm. We want an answer. We want we want this problem solved. So we want, we want a reason. When the storms come, well, what do we do? Sometimes I mean, we cry out, why, God? Why are you doing this? I'm just trying to follow you, and here I am getting into a shipwreck. What's going on, Lord? What's up with that? Why, God? We, wanna, we want a reason. We want to know why. Or we want a resolution. God, I don't know. I don't need to know why. I just want you to take this away from me. Take it away. I don't want to be in this situation anymore. I don't want to be in this storm anymore. Take it away, God. See, we want, we want a reason or a resolution. We think what we need most in the storm is a reason or a resolution. But what we need most, what we truly need most in the storms is not a reason or a resolution. It's a revelation. It's a revelation, a reminder of who our God is and what he's done for us. It's a reminder that I belong to him. That my sins are paid for. That I'm safe and secure in his hands. I don't need a reason. I don't need a resolution. I need a revelation. I need a reminder of who our God is. I need to remember that my God is bigger and greater than any storm I could ever walk through. I need a reminder that, that he's over the storm, that he's leading me and guiding me through the storm. We need a revelation and a reminder of our God 
so that I can get my eyes off the storm and on to the God of the storm. That's what I need most. That's what I need most. And that's what Paul's reminding us here. When he says that I belong to God, this is what he's reminding us of. That we are with our God. So we need to remember who we belong to. The second way we can navigate through the storms of life that we learn here is, is we focus on the journey, not just the destination. We focus on the journey, not just the destination. During the storms of life, it can be difficult to, to know what to do, right? I mean, we see these, these sailors. I mean, these are experienced people by the most part, right? Like it doesn't, this is a difficult time to sail. Like, you're not going to take the newbie on this difficult route, right? Like, these are most likely experienced sailors, and they, they're out of answers now. Like, they've tried everything they can, and nothing is it. They are still just at the mercy of this storm. And that's how it can feel sometimes in, in the storms of life, that I'm just drifting. And I've tried everything I can, and there's no answers. There's no help. There's no resolution. Like, nothing is changing. What do I do now? What do I do? What do I do? And the reason I think we feel that way is we tend to be results-oriented people, right? We tend to think propositionally. If I do this, then this will happen. And we, we apply that mindset to all areas of life. We apply it to our jobs. If I, if I do these things to be a good employee, well, then I'll be rewarded. If I, if I work hard and, and do this, well, then I'll get that promotion. If I follow these steps and do these things with this project, well, then it's going to be successful. We uh, apply it to our finances, right? If I follow these principles of investment and debt management, then eventually at the end of my life, man, I will have this, this fund of wealth and I can live like no one else, right? Like that's the saying that Dave Ramsey uses, right? Like if I follow these principles, then, then all things are going to be good. Or, you know, in our relationships even, with our spouse or our kids, if I, if I treat my wife this way, if I do these things for my family, if I do these things for my kids, if I teach my kids these things, well, then this will happen. Then this will accomplish. I mean, there's, there's a whole host of books out there that will, that will tell you exactly that. A whole host of, of websites and blogs you can read that are like, if you want to have godly kids or a godly marriage, then follow these steps. I remember when we had, had kids, uh, our first kid came along, Zayden, and we adopted him. Before we got to that point, we were reading all of these baby books, right? And it's like, here, you want to have your kid on a good schedule? Then follow these steps. Do these things. What they don't tell you what they don't tell you in these books is that every kid is different. What they need to have at the beginning of these books and marriage books and anything like that is a, just a simple sentence at the beginning. This may not work out for you. It might not. You can do every step that I give you, and it might end horribly. They need that preface because that, that's what can happen. You can follow all the steps, and you get to the end. It's like, this is the exact opposite of what they said would happen because everybody's different. Every kid's different. Every situation is different doesn't always work this way. But this is how we tend to think. We, we tend to think propositionally. We tend to be results-oriented. And we bring that into our relationship with God sometimes. If I do these things for Jesus, well, well then my life will work out. If I, if I attend church, if I read my Bible, if I pray, if I do these things, if I, if I, if I follow these steps in my relationship with God, well, then I don't have to worry. Then, then, I, you know, then I will have my best life now or whatever it is that we say, right? Like, we have this mindset. If I do this, then these things will happen. What happens when, when it doesn't work out that way? What happens when it doesn't always play out the way that we think? Look, Paul knew that God wanted him to go to Rome. Like, this was clear. He's been told this a few times now that we've seen in, in Acts here at the end, in these chapters that we've been reading. We, we know that God has made it clear, Paul, you're going to Rome. That's the destination. That's where Paul is ending up. Paul knows that. Now, he sat in prison for a couple of years up to this point. Like, he's had to wait, but he knew, this is where I'm going. And then finally, finally, word comes down to Paul, hey, we got you a ship, you're going to Rome. I mean, as scary as it is to go and stand before the most powerful person of the world at this time, I'm sure there was a little bit of relief from Paul, like, oh, finally, finally, okay, Lord, thanks. You had me waiting there. I was worried a little bit. I knew you were going to come through, but man, I was, I don't know. I'm sure there was a little bit of relief to go, oh, man, cool. We're finally going to get there. All right, sounds good, God. So he's no, I'm, I'm going to Rome. He finally starts heading there. And then this is what happens? Really? 
Like, this is the way that God is getting Paul to Rome. There, there, God, there, there, couldn't have been, there couldn't have been an easier route to Rome. Like, we couldn't have waited just a few more months when the seas were calmer. Like, this is the way you're getting him to Rome? Really? This faithful servant of yours, Paul, who's done nothing but give his life to Jesus since he put his faith in him, is now following God's plan, right? He's following God's steps. He's following God's will. He's doing everything God told him to do. And this is what happens? This is how he gets to Rome? With a bunch of difficulty, a horrible storm, fear of death, a shipwreck, getting stranded on an island? And we're going to see in chapter 28, that, that's not the end. There's more coming to Paul on his way to Rome. This is not an easy journey, but this teaches us something. This teaches us something about God. God doesn't just care about the destination. He does, right? He absolutely cares about where we end up. God wants us in certain places at certain times. He cares about the destination. He cares about our eternal destination, so much so that he gave his life to save us, to give us eternal life, to bring us to that destination. God cares about the destination. But he doesn't just care about the destination. He also cares about the journey. God doesn't just care that we get to where he wants. He cares about how we get to where he wants. It's not just about the destination. It's also about the journey. It's not where we end up. It's also how we end up there. And this way, God shows us that, that he's more process-oriented than result-oriented. God cares about the process. Look, he could have brought Paul to Rome any way that he wanted to. Right? He's God. If he wanted to make it easier, he absolutely could. If he wanted to take away all the the windstorms and anything and just make it smooth sailing and they get there in a matter of weeks, he could have absolutely done that. But he chose to do it this way. Why is that? We don't ever really know why, but what we do know from Scripture is that God works in these moments. Right? He, He uses these moments to do something. He's accomplishing something in the storms of life one way is he, he uses the storms of life to, to shape us, to mold us, to, to turn us into who he wants us to be, right? He takes these storms and he uses them to make us more like Jesus. You know, we, we understand that concept, right? We'll, we'll say sometimes like, oh, well, if such and such didn't happen, then I wouldn't be where I am today. Oh, if I didn't go through that, I wouldn't be the person that I am today. Like, we understand that concept, we tend to forget it in the storm. It's not always like, oh, well, I'm in this horrible moment of my life. Well, I know at some point I'll look back on this with fond memories and go, well, if I didn't do that. No, we don't think like that in the storm, right? We're like, oh, God, why? Like, that's typically what we do. Or maybe that's just me. So we understand this idea. We just don't necessarily like this idea. But this is, this is what God's doing. He uses the storms to mold us and shape us and form us into his people, into who he wants us to be. We see this spoken of throughout Scripture. One of my favorite places is, is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. He, he writes, You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. Okay, time out. What? One of the reasons I love this is because Peter is writing to Christians scattered across the Roman Empire who are going through an intense season of persecution. I mean, things that we could never understand as Americans today. We think we know persecution. We have, we have no idea. They're going through intense persecution, and he writes this, you rejoice in suffering? What? Who does that? That's crazy, y'all. That's crazy. Who rejoices? Like, yes, Lord, bring more suffering. I love it. Nobody does that. Nobody says that. You rejoice in suffering? Why? Verse 7, so that. Or another way to say that is because. You rejoice because so that the proven character of your faith more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though now, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Why do we rejoice in suffering? How can we rejoice in our darkest moments of struggle and despair in this life? It's because we know God has not left us alone. He is at work. He is using these difficult moments to refine us, to shape us, to mold us, to strengthen our faith and our trust in him, to build the character that God wants to see in us. 
Again, he cares about how we get to where we want, where he wants us to go. He cares about who we are when we get to that destination. And God uses these storms to mold us and shape us. God is at work in the storms. He also uses storms for the good of others, right? And in our storms, in, in moments of struggle and despair, God uses those moments to help encourage and give comfort to people who walk through similar struggles. We see Paul write this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. He says, He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. In this way, we learn that, that our storms, our struggles aren't just for us. It's also for others. It's also for others. When my wife and I were walking through seasons of infertility and miscarriages and, and just a bunch of pain and loss, there were really dark moments or really hard moments. I don't know exactly why God led us through that, but he did. And now looking back, I, I, I can think and recount of several times that other people in our life have gone through something similar, and we've been able to come alongside and love and encourage and support in those really dark moments because we walked through that. We saw it. It's not the same exact thing, but, but we, we saw something similar. And here's how the Lord brought us through. And we can sit and pray and, and weep and grieve with them. So God uses our storms to comfort others who also walk through a storm. God also uses storms as an opportunity to encourage others. Paul's the only one who seems to have his head straight on this boat, right? Like everybody's crying out in despair, all hope is lost, and here's Paul going, have courage, have courage, God's got us. He's going to bring us through. So when our faith is strong in moments of difficulty, the Lord uses that to encourage others. And sometimes we need that. Like sometimes in these storms, man, my faith can be low and I need somebody who's got strong faith to give me some of their strength, right? Like sometimes we need that. Sometimes we can be the one that, that picks up and encourages somebody who's in a real moment of difficulty in a really dark storm. We can be that encourager to them. God also uses the storm as, as an opportunity for witness. When storms come in life, when tragedy strikes in life, people look for comfort. They look for any kind of hope that they can grasp onto. Anybody, whether you're far from God or close to God, we're all doing that. Look at, look at verse 29. What, what are these guys doing? What are, what are the people on the ship doing at, at their moments, moment of greatest fear? Verse 29. Then, fearing we might run aground on rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight to come. Now we know this boat is not filled with a bunch of followers of Jesus. But these people are at their lowest point, and what do we typically do in that? We pray, right? Like everybody in the moment of tragedy and despair and grief and sadness, everybody turns into a prayer warrior, right? What, everybody, even if you're not churched at all, tragedy strikes, what do we say? Well, all we can do is pray. Praying for you, praying for that. Like anytime we see tragedy strike in our nation or, or we go through a season of difficulty in the world, what's everybody doing? Everybody's praying. Everybody's asking for prayer. We saw that happen this week. Those of you who are sports fans, maybe you saw or heard about the, the player, NFL player, who collapsed on the field and had to be resuscitated on the field during a game. Had to be given CPR and resuscitated. And then taken to the hospital fighting for his life. Now, praise God, that man is on the road to recovery. But in these days following that, in these moments following that, what, what's the whole world doing? Christians, non-Christians, everybody, who, we're all asking for prayer. Everybody's saying, we, we gotta pray, we gotta pray, we gotta pray. What this reminds us of is that within all of us, no matter how far away from God, no matter how unspiritual we are, there is this deep-seated longing for the spiritual, for the transcendent, for any sort of supernatural grace and comfort in these moments. Because we, in these moments, we're reminded, man, I'm not in control at all. I don't, there's a lot of unanswered questions, there's a lot of uneasiness, there's a lot of despair, and then we just start grasping. In these moments, it allows us as believers to come in and lovingly point people to Jesus. Hey, you're looking for somebody to hold on to in this storm? There's only one, and his name is Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about it, right? Like, he gives us this opportunity for witness. So during the storms of life, don't just look to the destination. Don't just focus on getting out of the storm. Also focus on the journey. 
What is God doing? What is God trying to teach you? How is he molding you and shaping you? How is he growing you? Are, are there opportunities for encouragement or witness? All right, so we see to navigate the storms in life, we see that we need to remember who we belong to. We need to focus on the journey, not just the destination. Number three, we need to walk in faith. We need to walk in faith. Let's look again at, at Paul's words here to the passengers in verses 22 through 26. He says, Now I urge you to take courage, because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. For last night an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar. And indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So take courage, men, because I believe God that it will be just the way it was told to me. But we have to run aground on some island. So where, where is Paul's courage coming from? Where is this courage that he's calling everybody else to have? It's not just that God told him that there's no life is going to be lost here. It's not just that. It's mainly that Paul believes that. Paul believes that. He believes that promise from God. He tells them to have courage. Why? Because I believe God that it will be just the way it was told to me. He believes God. He has faith. This is the basis for Paul's courage, not just that the angel told him what was going to happen, but that Paul believes, truly believes that it will happen. He knows it will happen. He has faith. He trusts God's word that it will happen just like he said. Romans 8.28, we read and reference this passage a lot, right? It's a great verse. verse Romans 8.28 says this, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Now, a lot of times, I don't know, I don't know about you, but I tend to focus on, on that, that truth. All things work together, right? All things God is working together for our good and his glory, according to his purpose, his will. He's working all things, the good, the bad, the unthinkable, the tragic, the, the wonderful, all things. But there's this, this word near the beginning there that really changes everything. It says, we know that all things work together. Not I think. Not I, I think all things will work together. Not, not I, I wish all things will work together. Not I kind of hope, but I'm, I'm a little unsure if they will, but, but I, it would be great if it did work together. That's not what it says. It says we know we know all things work together. We know. We believe. We know that that will happen. We hold on to that promise. We have faith that no matter what is happening, that God is working. We know it. Not I think, not I wish. I know. Do we know that? Paul knew. Paul knew. He had faith. No matter what the storm came, no matter what was happening, he trusted. He had faith. Like no matter what storm we may go through, no matter, no matter how far we may drift out to sea, no matter how much we're, we're tossed around by the waves of life, we can have faith in God. We can trust him. We can trust his word. And like Paul doesn't just, just say that he believes this, right? He acts on that faith. He acts on that faith. Look again at what he says in verse 26. He says, I believe it's going to happen. Verse 26, but we have to run around on some island. So God's going to save us, yes, but here's how he's going to do that. We have to run the ship aground on an island. So there's, there's a step here that's required, an act of obedience of Paul and the crew. Yes, God's going to save you. Yes, we believe that, but God calls them to do something. And that in this case, it's running the ship aground on some island. That's the way he's going to save them. That's the means of his deliverance. Their faith, Paul's belief, requires action. True faith will always be accompanied by action. It will always be accompanied by obedience. Faith and obedience go together. They're the, the two sides of one coin, right? This is what James reminds us of in, act, in James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. If our faith doesn't come with action, if it doesn't come with obedience, it's dead. 
Look, we, we can have all the right answers, right? We can know all the truths about God. We can memorize this thing, right? We can know all the right doctrine. We can have all the right theology. We can believe all the right things and know, man, I, everything in here, 100% true. Yes, I believe that. I know it's all true. But if that belief doesn't come with action, all those right things that we believe absolutely means, means so much less, right? They, they carry far less weight to it if we don't follow through with action. All right, I'm going to pull an illustration out from my youth pastor days here. Take this chair. This chair is a sturdy chair, right? I know it just kind of folded a little bit, but y'all believe you're sitting in them, right? You believe that this chair will hold you up. Now, what if I'm up here talking about how great and wonderful this chair is? I can tell you all the details about this chair. I can tell you who made it. I can tell you, you know, how it was crafted, how the four legs will make sure that it supports anybody, right? Anybody can sit in this chair and you'll be supported. I can, I can say, I love this chair. I love this chair. I give my life for this chair, right? Like if this church asked me, if this chair asked me to die for it, I would do that. I can say all those things. And you're like, okay, just sit in it. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm, I'm good. I don't think I'm going to sit down. Again, I can know all the right things. I can say all the right things. I can say I believe that this chair will hold me up. Unless I actually sit in it, you're going to start to doubt. You're starting to go, you know, I don't, you, you say that, Travis. You say that you believe that, but I'm not really seeing any, any action with that. I'm not really seeing any reason to, to take you at your word, right? But now, if I say this chair will hold me up, and then I, then I sit in it, that makes a difference. I've acted on my faith. I've demonstrated to you that I actually believe that to be true. It's the same in our relationship with God. We can say that we believe all of these things about God. We can say we, we have all the right theology, know all the right answers, unless we act in obedience on that faith, church. It's dead. It's dead faith. Faith comes with obedience. It comes with action. Stand up, I'll put this chair back over here. There we go, it's a good chair, y'all. Y'all should sit in it next time. These, these chairs in the front row are, are just as good as those chairs in the back row. I'm just saying, just saying. So uh, navigating the storms of life, we, we know that we have to remember who we belong to. We have to focus on the journey, not just the destination. We have to walk in faith. And number four, we'll end here. We have to rely on God's grace. We have to rely on God's grace. Rely on God's grace. I love what this angel told Paul in verse 24, he said, don't be afraid, Paul. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar, and indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. Graciously given. That, that word for graciously given is the Greek word charizomai. Charizomai, it means, it's a word that means to give or grant graciously with the implication of goodwill on the part of a giver. Another way to say that less technical way, it's somebody doing you a favor. That's what it means. Somebody has given you a favor. That's what it tells us. What this reminds us of is God doesn't have to save the crew. This whole journey is about getting Paul to Rome. Not anybody else. He doesn't have to get anybody else to Rome. God has said, I'm bringing Paul to Rome. Not even Luke, who's with him, writing this very thing. He didn't say, I've got to bring Paul and Luke. No, just Paul. He's just got to bring Paul to Rome. He doesn't have to save anybody else. He doesn't have to save the crew. But he does. He does. God is always ready to give grace. That's who our God is. He always gives grace especially in our moments of difficulty, especially in our moments of suffering, God gives grace. Paul says this in, in 2 Corinthians 2, 9, 12, 9 through 10, about God's grace and suffering. He writes, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God gives us grace in life's difficult moments. He gives us grace in the storms. He gives us grace to make it through those storms. He gives us grace to endure those storms. And it's God's grace in these storms 
that leads us to him. Because that's the only way we're going to make it through. It's by relying on God. Paul knew that. And that's why he can rejoice in these moments of difficulty. That's why he can rejoice in moments of weakness because it tells him, man, I rely on God. I'm in God's hands. I belong to him, right? That's God's grace in moments of hardship, that we would turn to him, that we would run to him, that we would rely on him. It's God's grace. Paul also writes this in Philippians 1.29. He says, For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Now that, that phrase right there, it has been granted to you, it's a Greek word, charizomai. It's the same word we see in Acts chapter 27. What this tells us is that the suffering we face in this life is God's favor to us. Now that sounds wild, right? How does that make any sense? Look, I don't, I don't have all the answers for that. I don't, but that's what the scripture says. It's God's grace to us that he brings suffering. I think it's because of what we see in Acts 27 here. I think it's because we see this in other places in scripture that, that through these moments of suffering, God works in our lives. He refines us. He makes us more like him. It's God's grace that we walk through moments of hardship. So God gives us grace in times of suffering and difficulty. God, God also gives us grace in times of sin. And look, I think, I think we'd be honest about our situation sometimes. Sometimes we face storms because of our sin, because of our bad decisions, because we've turned away from God. This isn't the only sea storm that we see in Scripture, right? Perhaps the most famous one is with a guy named Jonah. Jonah, if you've been in church for any number of years, you've probably heard the story of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and God tells Jonah one day, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Yes, I know it's this great, terrible, awful city. Yes, I know they're Israel's enemies. Yes, I know you probably hate them, but I want you to go to Nineveh and preach my word to them. And Jonah, being a good man who loved Jesus, was like, no, God, I'm, I'm good. No thanks. No thanks. And he turns away, and he goes the opposite direction. I love how uh, the children's Bible, the Jesus Story Bible says what he did was he bought a ticket for not Nineveh. Like, that's, he was going anywhere but Nineveh. The opposite direction of Nineveh, that's where Jonah was going. So he gets on this boat, and he's going the opposite direction of where God told him to go. And what happens? Well, this big storm comes. The, the, the ship's crew, they're, they're going wild. Like, they're just losing their minds. They're scared. They're throwing stuff overboard. They're trying to row as hard as they can. They're praying out to their gods, and Jonah's finally like, hey, y'all, uh, sorry, this storm is because of me. So here's what you're going to do. Just throw me overboard, and it'll stop. And they're like, we're not doing that. He's like, no, 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 just, just throw me overboard. It'll, it'll stop, I promise. So they do that. They throw him overboard, and the storm stops immediately. Now, Jonah, I think, does this thing, and will just kill me, and then I really don't have to follow God. Like, this is his ultimate act of disobedience is being thrown overboard, so he really doesn't have to go to Nineveh. God's got other plans, right? He's got other plans in this moment, and he gets swallowed up by a fish. He gets swallowed up by a fish, spends three days in the fish. Now, now Jonah's storm came as a result of his disobedience to God. He was in a storm because he went away from God. He rejected God. But even in Jonah's sin, God wasn't done with him. God wasn't done with him. It was God's grace that the storm came to Jonah because God used that storm in his time in the fish, to wake Jonah up, to open his eyes to his sin and God's goodness in his life. And that's exactly what happens. Jonah repents, the fish spits him out on dry ground, and this is what happened, this happens next. I love this part of Jonah. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 3 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Jonah disobeyed. Jonah rejected God. Jonah went the exact opposite direction of where he was supposed to go. And what does God do? He gives him a second chance. He gives him grace. Because that's who our God is. That's what our God does when we mess up. When we sin, when we reject God, and we turn the other way, when the storms of life come because of my direct disobedience to God, there is always an opportunity for a second chance. There is always an opportunity to turn to God's grace. Let's turn to God. Put your faith 
and your trust in him. As we end today, as we close up for us today, I want to ask a question for all of us to consider. When the storms of life come, and they will, and they do, where do we turn? Where do we turn? Do I turn to myself? Do I rely on my wisdom and strength and ability and giftings to pull myself out of the storm? Do I rely on myself? Do I turn to the wisdom of this world? Okay, God, I tried it your way. Tried it your way, God, and this is what happened. I got into a shipwreck. Well, now I'm doing something else. Thanks, God, but no thanks. Now I'm going to turn over here and try something different. Do we just sit in our anger and frustration and just keep going, why, God, and, and, and cry out to him in anger? Do we just sit in our frustration? Is our love for God and our trust in him dependent on how easy or difficult this life is? Acts 27 teaches us that there's only one who can carry us through the storms. There's only one who can save and deliver us, and that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Now, the, the ship's crew, despite all their efforts, they could not prevent this ship from sinking, from hitting the rocks, breaking apart in the middle of the ocean. They couldn't stop that. They couldn't even rely on the sun and the stars to navigate and figure out where they were going. Right, The, the storm clouded all of that. They could not save themselves. There was only one chance for them. And that was to put their faith and trust in the God of this random prisoner named Paul. That was their way of salvation. That was their only shot, their only way. It's the same for us. When storms of life hit, there is only one who can rescue there's only one who can save. There's only one who can pull us through, and his name is Jesus Christ. So believer in the room, we're going to enter into this moment of, of prayer and worship and communion, just like we do every Sunday. So if you put your faith in Jesus, Christian, in the room, I would encourage you just, just sit for a moment. Maybe you need to, to spend some time in prayer. Maybe you, you've been a little bit like Jonah you've turned your back, you, you've walked the other way, and you just need to sit and, and, and repent and, and turn back to Jesus. Or maybe you're, you're in a moment of despair, in a moment of hardship, in, in a moment where you feel like your life is about to hit the rocks. And it's hard. It's frustrating. There's no answer. There's no resolution. There's no reason for it. Maybe you just need to, to sit and, and remember who you belong to that you are safe and secure in his hands. Maybe you need to say, I know that all things work together. And maybe you need to pray that prayer that we see in Mark 9, where he says, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. And sometimes we need to pray that. I believe Jesus, but, but I'm struggling. Help me out. I need you. Maybe you need to spend some time doing that. And as you're ready, as you're prepared, Christian in the room, we go to either side of the table and we take the bread and the cup representing his broken body and shed blood for us on the cross. We, we eat, we drink, we remember, we praise and celebrate our good God and Savior. For those here who might not know Jesus, you haven't put your faith in him, I want to encourage you, the message of Acts 27 is that Jesus is the only one who can save. Storms are coming. That's what this life is so often. It's either we're, we're coming out of a storm or about to head into a storm, right? Storms are coming. This world can't save you. You can't save yourself. Only Jesus can save you. And he loves you so much that he gave his life for you. And to have forgiveness, to have healing, to have restoration and redemption and freedom, all God says is, is to turn to faith and trust in him. Stop relying on yourself and rely on his grace. Turn to Jesus. If you want to do that, I'll be hanging out in the back. I'd love to talk to you about that and answer any questions you may have. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the journey. I know sometimes I don't always appreciate it in the moment. I don't always look at the storms with gratitude. I don't always rejoice 
in the moments of hardship and suffering, Jesus. But God, I know, I believe that you are at work, that you are leading us in the storm, that you are guiding us every step of the way, that, that you are in control at all times, Lord, and no matter how, li- how difficult this life gets, that I'm always safe with you, Jesus. Just give me strength to stay with you, Lord. Give us strength to walk in faithful obedience wherever you take us. In our moments of weakness, in our moments when our faith is low, Lord, would you strengthen us? Would you bring our, our fellow brothers and sisters alongside us to encourage and lift us up, just like Paul does here, Lord? Jesus, thank you for who you are, for all that you do for us, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your salvation, Jesus. We love you. It's your name we pray.